The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hola, hey, you beat me to it. Hello, hello. Man, that's some good worship. Anthony has the power of the man bun. And I don't know if you guys know, this is a real thing. Like, if you have a man bun, it gives you power. Um, It's real life. Also, cloaks and staffs for those of you that might also want power. Um, How is everybody? Yeah? Good, good. It's good to be here with you guys. Good to be in the house of the Lord. And man, it's just good to open the word. Um, Let's just take a a couple minutes and pray. And um, as as I usually do, I'm just going to ask you guys to take a couple minutes and invite the Lord, well, not a couple minutes, take a a few seconds and invite the Lord to speak to you tonight. Just invite his presence into this place. You guys know And I know that um, I have nothing to say with power unless the Holy Spirit inhabits the words. And uh, and honestly, it doesn't even matter what God speaks. If your heart's not open to it, you're not going to hear it. So pray that God would open your heart. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak and that life change would happen tonight as the gospel's proclaimed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't take um, time like this very often, like we should, just to stop for a moment and pause in silence and say law for a moment and invite your presence, but we want to do that now. God, this church doesn't need me. This church doesn't need knowledge. God, we need your presence. We We need your Holy Spirit to show up and manifest Jesus to our hearts to make this truth real to us in a way that affects us and changes our life forever, in a way that brings forth eternal worship. So Holy Spirit, would you come? We invite you, we look to you. Jesus, you are our pastor. You are our leader, our shepherd. You hold the words to eternal life. You are the key to eternal life. So Jesus, would you manifest yourself through the scriptures in a way that changes our hearts? I pray that in Christ's powerful name. Amen. Amen. Second Samuel, if you guys are there, everybody get one of these bad boys? It's a, no? Did everybody get one? Yeah, everybody got one? It's uh, what did I what did I call it? Already been chewed gum colored? Who's that? Hi. <laughs> Mary's so awesome. She prints those every week for me. She gets a different color every week, which is amazing. And this week was ABC gum color, which is cool. Um, Human beings are complex, aren't we? Um, Anybody who's married knows that human beings are complex. Um, Anyone who's anyone knows that human beings are complex. Even ourselves, we have a hard time figuring out. I've been in this this season uh, lately of watching and taking in sort of documentaries and biographies and things like that about people's lives. And uh, specifically some, some documentaries about some of the U.S. presidents and just sort of the, some of the notable people, you know, that we all think of as, as being the famous and the, the great people of, of our generation or even past generations. And it's really interesting when you watch a, a show or a movie or read a book about the entirety of someone's life, like beginning to end from when they were born all the way till they die, you really get an interesting perspective on that person's life um, because you see all of it. Most of our interactions with people uh, throughout the, you know, our life is for a year or two. I mean, I have friends and seasons with friends for two or three years that kind of goes all the way back um, since I was born, you know, but, but I, there's no one in my life that I can really look at and see the entirety of their life. But through biographies and through history and through things, we're able to really see synopsises of sometimes of the entirety of people's lives from beginning to end. And, and what's interesting about that is what you start to see is you start to see things like what shaped them and what made them into the person that they are and what, where they built their worldview, what, what things happened in their life that made them make the decisions that they made. Um, you see them in, in humble situations, you see them in powerful situations, and you see how they handle themselves uh, from rags to riches. And the interesting, every, every famous and notable and powerful person at one point in time was just a baby. 
or was just a not a powerful person. And you get to see them in all kinds of different contexts. And really, that is exactly what the book of 2 Samuel is. It's a biography about this man, David. Now, most of you guys are really familiar with David. Um, you guys probably have heard a lot of stories. Maybe some of you have never even heard of David. But 2 Samuel, if you want to put this in your, in your uh, questionnaire, 2 Samuel is the book of David. It just is. I, I couldn't think of anything else to call it. It's just, it's the book of David. The whole thing is about David's life, um, which is really interesting that God would devote an entire book to one man's life story. It's really interesting. But the interesting thing about it is we don't just see David when he was successful. We see David when he was a failure. We see David when he was struggling. We see David when he was weak. We see David when he was strong. We see him when he did the right thing. We see him when he did the wrong thing. We see him when he's a shepherd. We see him when he's a king. We see him when he's running away uh, like, like a like an outlaw hiding in caves, we see him at the end of his life when he's, he's old and he has kids and he has a lot of history, but we see him in all different points of his life. And 2 Samuel specifically is about David's life as a king. If you guys remember last week, we looked at 1 Samuel and that was really about David's life before he became a king. And 2 Samuel is all about his life becoming a king. Now, every human being um, has as many, if not more, failures than successes, don't we? Like if you were to add up, which would be a terrifying thing to do, if you were to add up on a piece of paper every good thing that you did and every bad thing that you did, I'm pretty certain that almost all of us would have more bad things than good things. That's why I'm, I'm thank God that we don't believe in Islam because we'd all go to hell, right? They believe when you get there, God, you know, Allah's gonna weigh it out and you better have more good than bad. I don't know about you, but I doubt, highly doubt that I have more good than bad. Guarantee I have more bad than good, and you guys probably do too. That's the interesting thing about human beings. If we were to look at all the things we did in our life, more than likely we would have done more bad things than good things. And there's all kinds of people that we look to as leaders, people that we look up to, especially even in Christianity, that we think of as, as being good and successful and, and, and great people. But when you really dig into your lives, you find out that they even had seasons of great failures. Uh, one example is a man named A.W. Tozer wrote a lot of amazing books, was a theologian, not, didn't live that long ago, but what a lot of people don't know about A.W. Tozer, he was also a terrible husband and a terrible father. He literally sacrificed his kids at the altar of ministry. Um, John Wesley, John Wesley really started sort of more of the Pentecostal and mainstream evangelical movement that we see now in Christianity and was really the foundation stones for, for a lot of what we now do as Christianity. But he was also an adulterer, like David. Uh, and Martin Luther King Jr., I even just recently found out, you know, sort of the, the champion of the civil rights movement was an adulterer. All of these people that we've looked up to, even just in the last five years, I've had two pastors that on a national level have huge impact that I looked up to and I've watched them fail. Huge ways. Pastor Mark Driscoll up at Seattle who had this huge influence who I looked up to and, and who, who I would listen to and resource his sermons was literally, his church was dissolved because he had an abusive tendency in the pulpit and the way that he treated his staff members was terrible. And the church fell apart. Or Bob Coy, one of the most famous preachers in, in the Calvary Chapel movement, adulterer, moral failure. What do we do with that? I mean, these, these are people that we, we look at their life and we think these are people of greatness, but then all of a sudden they fail. Now, my question is, does their bad nullify their good? And I don't mean that in a salvation sense. I mean, when you step back and you say, what did their life stand for? Do you remember them as being a failure? Or do you remember them as being a success? Do you remember them based off of what good things they did or bad things they did? History has a way of forgetting some of the bad things and only remembering the good things. You know, JFK, everyone loves JFK. He was an adulterer. He slept with tons of women and the media never said anything about it. We think of him as a good guy. He wasn't really a good guy. My question to you guys is when, when someone's gonna look at the entirety of your life, everything that you did, everything that you didn't do, everything you did right, everything you did wrong, what does someone think of your life? What would they think of it? What would they think about who you are and what would your life draw attention to? Would it draw attention to your greatness? Would it draw attention to your failures? Would it draw attention to the fact that you were just kind of average? 
What would your life tell if someone like David had a book written about you that you could pick apart with a highlighter and a pen and try to make applications out of your life? What would people do? I kind of feel sorry for David a little bit. (laughs) I mean, here we are thousands of years later, like picking apart his life, like, oh, here's what he did good and here's what he did bad. And then, oh, stupid David, why did you do that? Oh, good job, David, you know. None of us are gonna have that kind of scrutiny, um, you know, in, in, in this life at least. I mean, so it's really interesting just to think about that. But does their bad nullify their good? Now, it's not if you and I will fail. Okay, this is gonna be depressing, but I'm just gonna tell you. It's not if you and I will fail in life. It's when, okay? It's when. And if, if you've lived, you know that to be true. You are on self-destruct mode, Okay? If left up to yourself, you will destroy your life. You will make the wrong decisions. You will go down the wrong path. That is the reality of life. And anyone who's lived knows that that's true, okay? Now, my question is, why is David thought of as a successful man, the man after God's own heart, and Saul is not? Now, I want to tell you guys, the book of 1 and 2 Samuel is really one book, okay? So we're really just doing the part two to the book of Samuel. So if you guys didn't hear 1 Samuel, maybe, maybe check it out on the website, but because it's really one book, it's one story. Uh, and it's not just about David. There's this other character named Saul, who's another primary character. And I truly believe that the author of Samuel, uh, the author of Samuel who ultimately was God, um, wanted the reader, wanted you and I to look at Saul and look at David and sort of have a contrast between the two, to compare the two. But here's what's interesting. If I had a board up here and I, and I put, you know, David's shortcomings and Saul's shortcomings and David's strengths and Saul's strengths, you probably wouldn't think that David was much better. In fact, you might even think he was worse than Saul. Why is David gone down in history as the man after God's own heart, but yet Saul goes down in history as the failed king? As the representation, the embodiment of Israel's disobedience and wanting a king. Israel says, we want a king to be like other nations. God says, okay, I'll give you someone just like you, Saul. And Saul, as God said, was going to take their sons and take their daughters and take their money and be a tyrannical king at times and make failures and do the wrong thing. But so did David. They both failed. They both had issues. But yet David goes down in history as a successful one. I want to pick at that a little bit and ask the question, why? Why is that? Why does the New Testament, not just evangelicalism or just biblical historians, but why does the New Testament paint David as an example of greatness? And the Bible tells his flaws straight out. I mean, they're, they're, they're there for everyone to see. But why does the Bible say that he was a great man? Uh, I think that the bigger question is this, guys. How do you truly measure a successful life? How do you know? How do you measure a successful life? I mean, even the people that have rose to the highest positions in the world have had some of the worst failures in the world. How do you know if they're successful? When do you know if your life is the way that it's supposed to be? When do you know that your life is actually a success? And and here's what I would say. And this is the whole point of the teaching, and then we'll we'll sort of let David's life explain it, okay? So, So maybe you might even write this down. The true measure of greatness is this. When people see your life... When people see your life and don't see you reflected, they see God's heart reflected. I'll say that again because I know you guys are writing it down, okay? The true measure of greatness is when people see your life, they observe your life, and when they look at your life, they don't see reflected who you are and how great you are or how terrible you are. When they look at your life, they see reflected God's heart. They look at you and they see God. That, I believe, is the true measure of whether you are great or not. When people look at your life, do they see you? Yeah, Sam, he was a good guy. Yeah, Sam, he was a terrible guy. Yeah, Sam, he was, you know, oh, he was a pastor. Is that what I want to get to my life? Is that, is that what I want people to come up and talk about, I mean, as a pastor, I get to be parts of, part of lots of memorials, and I listen to lots of memorials of people that I don't know, and I've never met before, and it's really interesting hearing a memorial about someone you don't know. What would I surmise about that person based off of the memorial at the end of their life, someone that I've never met? And sometimes I think, 
Okay, yeah, they were in the military, and okay, they were into motorcycles or whatever, you know, all of this stuff about what they like to do came out. But sometimes you go to a memorial and you're like, wow, I see God reflected in that person's life and I didn't even know them. Everything that people say about them has to do with how their life reflected God's heart. And to answer the question of why has David gone down in history as the man after God's own heart while Saul has gone down in history as the failed king, it's because Saul was, or because David exemplified God's heart. Not because he was a better man, not because he was stronger, not because he was more moral, not because he was the anointed of God. None of those reasons, not because he had humble beginnings, not because he was a shepherd, none of that stuff. The reason David was a man after God's own heart had nothing to do with his actions. It had everything to do with his understanding of God's heart and people's ability to see God's heart through not just his good actions, but listen, his bad ones, his bad ones. I wanna ask you guys, If someone was to study your life in totality, beginning to end, watch a documentary, a biography about your life in great detail, would they see who you are in that or would they see who God is? Would they feel like through your life they have a better understanding of who God is? The primary argument surrounding the book of Samuel is, uh, is whether the author was trying to paint David in a good light or in a bad light. I don't think it's either one. I think he just painted him as he is. But I do think that the author of Samuel was trying to paint David in a light that God would be seen in his reflection. That we, 2,000 years later, could sit here and look at David's life and see God. Not David's greatness. What is David's greatness? There's no such thing. But see God's greatness through him. And here's a lesson on how you read the Old Testament, okay? The whole point of this is for you guys to really get, just get your appetite wet for the Old Testament. And how you read the Old Testament is not to look at these men and say, what can we learn from them or what can we learn uh, that they, what what can we learn from what they should have done or what they didn't do? But what can we learn about God from these people? I've heard so many teachings about what David did right or what David did wrong. And that's fine, we can get some practical applications out of his life and we can learn from his mistakes. But I don't care about what David did right or did wrong. I care about what I can learn about God from David's life. Because the point of the scriptures is not to reveal man to us. We know about man, just look at yourself. The point of the scriptures is to reveal God to us and his nature and his eternality and his grace and his holiness and his righteousness, and all of the attributes of God, all of the facets of his personality. And in David's life, we get to see quite a few different ones. So what is the real lesson of David's heart? Or um, what is the real lesson of David's life? David was an example of God's grace. David was an example of God's redemption, and David was an example of God's kingship. And so here's how we're gonna attack this book, okay? There's kind of the setup, um, if you will. I, I, they're all Fs, okay? Um, so this is gonna be easy. If you wanna write it down, this is, this is how we're gonna break up the book of 2 Samuel. David's life in, as a king in 2 Samuel can be broken into three sections, okay? The first section is his season of fortune. Season of fortune. And that's not like he made a lot of money. That's like he was fortunate, okay? Fortune. And that's really chapters one through 10. The next season that we'll look at is David's season of failure. His season of failure. And that's chapters 11 and 12. And then lastly, his season of fallout, chapters 13 through 24. So fortune, failure, and fallout. That really encompasses, embodies, and and, and kind of divides for you David's life as a king. And we're just gonna walk through that. And what I hope to do is I hope to show you that through David's life, we get to see all kinds of different aspects of God. And not only through David's life, listen, through your guys' life. Through your guys' life. What will define you at the end of your life is not whether you did the right thing or the wrong thing. It will be whether you allowed God to use the right and the wrong things 
to display himself through your life. That's the point. Now let's kind of unpack this together and walk through the book. So the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel um, really are the best part of David's life, I would say. Uh, it's, it's where he is painted in the, the best light. Uh, and so I want to kind of walk through that and just, just show you a little bit uh, about that. But here's the thing. All of us have seasons where things are going good, don't we? Like, yeah, we have seasons that are hard. We have seasons that are hard, undoubtedly. We have seasons of failure, and we'll get to those. But David, just like anyone else, had seasons that were good. We all have seasons that were good. You go talk to a homeless guy on the streets and say, hey, tell me about your life when you were 20. He wasn't always homeless. A lot of homeless people were college educated, lived very comfortably. And life has a way of taking you through seasons. Well, David, in the first season of his life as a king, was a great king. He was probably the best king that there ever was. In fact, it was all downhill from David. Okay, you'll see that as we go through the books of Kings and Chronicles. It was all downhill from David. And, and just like David, we all have seasons and moments in our life where things are good, where things uh, are going sort of the way that we want. And David, in that season of his life, was able to display an aspect of God. And that aspect of God was God's justice, God's kingship, and God's rule. So kind of what his story looks like in, first, uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10. First, we see in the beginning of the book, David is confronted with, um, not confronted with, David is informed of the death of Saul. So at the end of 1 Samuel, if you guys remember, uh, it ended with this battle sequence where David and Saul are overrun by the Philistines. Saul falls on his own sword. They both get overrun. They both get killed. Um, and then 2 Samuel, which is, again, one book, uh, opens up with David hearing the news about Saul. Now, remember Saul and David's relationship was toxic. Saul tried to kill him. He chased him into the wilderness time and time again. He hated David. He was jealous of David. He wanted his position. He wanted his power. And now that man that has made David's life a living hell is gone. He's dead. So you would think David would be doing jumping jacks. He would be excited. Finally, he can take the throne because Samuel promised David, God promised David that he would be king. And finally, this guy who hates his guts and tried to kill him is gone. But that's not how David reacts to that, surprisingly. In, first, or in 2 Samuel, the, 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 the way that David reacts to that is with sorrow. He's sorrowful that Saul is dead. And you read that and you go, why, David, are you sorrowful that your enemy is dead? You should be rejoicing. But David is displaying something here. He's displaying, he's reflecting something here about God. He wasn't sad because Saul was dead. He was sad because God chose Saul. He was sad because God's anointed had died. David loved God. It wasn't that he loved Saul. He was sorrowful because God's anointed had died. And then we see in chapters 2 through 5, another, another act that David does right. He, he, the way that David took the throne. Okay, so a lot of people would think, probably, uh, as soon as Saul died, Samuel would just take over. But it didn't really work like that. Um, immediately, David takes over the throne in the south. And I have to explain something to you guys. This gets confusing. Israel is divided typically into two kingdoms. Rarely is it ruled all at once. Typically, Israel is divided in, in Bible times into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Two tribes in the south, ten tribes in the north. The, the, the south, usually referred to as Judah, which gets really confusing. And the top, the, the north tribes usually referred to, referred to as Israel, which is super confusing. Because you're rereading and it'll say Israel and you're thinking all of Israel or just the north? It's super confusing. Have fun with that. Um, but anyways, two tribes. So immediately after Saul's death, David usurps the throne of the southern tribes. But the northern tribes don't immediately fall under his reign. Because Saul's old right-hand man, uh, Abner, instates Saul's son, Ishbosheth, Which is a great name. Anyone looking for a name? Ishbosheth, right? You could call him Ishi for short, you know. Um, <laughs> gets a diaper rash, you could call him Ishi the Itchy. Um, anyways, Ishbosheth is Saul's son. And Abner basically comes in and says, No, 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 David's not going to be king. I want Saul's son, Ishbosheth, to be king. So he instates him, which basically starts a, a small civil war between David's mighty men and Saul's mighty men that are fighting over who's going to be king. But here's what I love about David in this instance. He doesn't step in and try to think, take things under control. 
He doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be king. I have been anointed, so get out of my way. I'm taking the throne. He doesn't do that. He doesn't send someone to go and try to assassinate Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. He doesn't do that. He waits for the Lord to bring him to the throne, which is really cool. And eventually what ends up happening, Abner switches sides, comes to David's side, uh, which the people follow Abner, and then the, 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 the kingdom is united under King David. And then shortly after that, a couple of guys think that they're going to get into David's good graces. They go and they kill Ishbosheth, chop off his head, and bring it to David, thinking that he's going to give them, you know, a nice little clap. And David's irritated with them. In fact, he's furious with them. He says, why have you killed an innocent man? Okay, and now, here's what I love about this story. David is embodying the justice and the righteous reign of God. David is sitting on the throne, ruling in the way that God would have him to rule. And in that moment, he's able to reflect God's righteousness. He was irritated that they killed an innocent man. A typical man would have said, yeah, great, Ishbosheth's gone, now I get to be king. But David didn't do that. He looked past that. We see David's heart in that. And then in chapter 6, David took the city of Jerusalem. He took the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a Canaanite stronghold. David comes in. He takes Jerusalem with the specific purpose of it being the capital city of Israel. But even a deeper purpose than that, David took Jerusalem because he wanted it to be a place for God's presence to dwell. And so he renamed Jerusalem Zion, or the city of David. But the point of Jerusalem in David's heart was really a place for God to dwell. Uh, for God's ark to be. And what that signifies about David was that he was a man that wanted God to be ruling the nation. It signifies that David was a man saying, I want it to be obvious through the city of Jerusalem and through the ark entering the city of Jerusalem that this is God's nation, this is God's city. And then lastly, in chapter 7, David desires uh, to build a house for the Lord. So David basically says, okay, uh, I'm here, I have a house, I have the kingdom, now it's time to build God a house. And so he inquires of the prophet Nathan, he says, go unto the Lord and ask him if I can build a temple for God. And God responds by saying, "Uh, actually, no, David, you can't build me a temple, but guess what? I'm going to build you a dynasty which is really cool, and I wish we could dig into it because it's so stinking rad. What God is saying is, David, no, don't worry about building me a temple. Your son will build me a house. Referring to, in the immediate sense, who? Solomon. In the eternal sense, referring to Jesus. How cool is that? Yeah, David, don't worry about building me a house right now because guess what? I'm going to establish your line forever. An eternal dynasty, not because of Solomon. Go read Ecclesiastes. Solomon was a numbskull, okay? Yeah, he built a temple, big deal. Who cares, okay? um, We studied Ecclesiastes for like two months, and I just got sick of Solomon. Uh, But Jesus was the dynasty of David. Through your line is going to come the perfect king, and that king is going to build an eternal temple out of living stones. You guys are the living stones, and that temple will house the glory of God forever, which is awesome, fantastic. I wish we could talk about that more. But again, we see David's heart wanting to rule in a way that brought attention to God's righteousness. And then lastly, we see this amazing story uh, in chapter 9. This is all, again, the first season of David's life. In chapter 9, where David basically says, hey, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? And notice he doesn't say, is there anyone in the house of Jonathan? I mean, Jonathan was his homeboy, right? Jonathan was his good friend. Uh, They were super close. But he doesn't say, is there anyone in the house of Jonathan? He says, is there anyone in the house of my mortal enemy Saul? Because I want to bless them. What? David, I mean, this guy had to have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit in these moments because there's no way that anyone ever would have thought that. Hey, is there a grandson or a son? Or was there a grandson of the guy that tried to kill me for all these years? I'd love to bless him and give him all of Saul's wealth and riches. And sure enough, there was. And his name is super fun to say. You guys want to say it with me? It's Mephibosheth. Can we say that together? Mephibosheth. I just I could say that all day. I mean, that's just so Mephibosheth. Um, it's fun to say. Mephibosheth was a crippled man. He he couldn't walk. So therefore, in that day, they didn't have welfare. They didn't have. Um, things that would take care of you if you had that. So he, he basically was a crippled and a poor man. So David says, because this is Saul's grandson, bring him in, give him everything that was Saul's, bring him in, he can eat at my table, he can have everything that is mine, and bless him. 
It's just an amazing generosity out of David's heart. Okay, now I say all that, again, not to, not to boast about David. Because as we keep reading, we're going to not think much of David in a minute. But I say all that to say that God displays, listen, God displays himself through us in many different ways. And one of those ways is through our seasons where everything is good. And when we are in those seasons where everything is good, God wants to show his justice and his love for the poor through us. There's this kind of weird, bad misconception um, that Christianity is really just all about growing more spiritual, about, you know, growing more spiritual in your own life. That's really not all that it is. You see, God is a just God, and God loves justice, and God loves for the poor to be fed, and God loves the sick to be healed, and God loves those that are hurting to be loved, and God loves for women going to get abortions to be loved outside of abortion clinics instead of picketed, right? That's God's heart. God is just and he's loving, okay? He's a just and perfect righteous king. So when you and I step into that for him and become his hands and become his feet and give that drink of water to that person in need, we become a reflection of a just and holy and righteous God. So Christianity is not just about pulling out your devotional and, and, and doing some personal things and then never thinking about the Lord again. Christianity is also about living out your king's desires. Through David's life, we not only see God's grace and God's redemption, as we'll see, we see God's justice. That he would take a man like Mephibosheth, who really had no reason to be loved, no reason to be taken in, but through God's justice, he would give him everything. And I don't know about you guys, but that's me. I'm Mephibosheth. I'm from a lineage of sin, sinful men, of broken men, and I am not able to live on my own, not able to take care of myself, but God has taken me in. And when we do the same thing, okay, when we do the same, when we love, as James says, widows and orphans and those that can't help themselves, we for a moment become a reflection of the justice of God. Oh, but what if I can't tell them the gospel? Okay, that's important. They need the gospel because without the gospel, they go to hell. But don't downplay the fact that when you give a cup of water to someone, Jesus said, you're giving it to me. You get to partner with God in that moment in his just and righteous reign when you do social justice. I hate that that's become a political tension term. I hate that. Oh, that's just what the left says. Forget that. Jesus said, fight for justice because that's what I do. Because God is a God that wants the poor to be fed. And God is a God that wants the broken to be loved. And as Christians, we get to reflect that nature of our God. And David did that in the first chapter of his life as a king. Now we get to look at his life and say, thank God for his generosity. Thank God for his love of those that need it. And those that are hurting. But none of our lives really are all seasons of prosperity. None of our lives are really seasons where everything goes the way we want it to be or the way we want it to go. The reality is the majority of our life is quite the opposite. The majority of our life, we don't have it all together. The majority of our life, we're experiencing the brokenness um, of the decisions that we've made in our lives. And the majority of our life, we're wrestling with our own inadequacies and we're wrestling with our own sin and brokenness. And so David's life quickly moves from from this amazing picture of him reflecting God's just reign to this picture of him reflecting his own humanity and failure. So in chapters 11 and 12, David does something really, really dumb. And, and, and as far as the man he blew it's go in the Bible, and we, there's a lot of man he blew it's in the Bible, you know what I mean? Like Abraham saying that your wife's your sister, man, dude, you blew it big time. You know what I mean? Like there's so many of the, like, like Adam and Eve in the garden, like, Adam, come on, dude, you blew it big time. As far as those go in the Bible, and there's a lot of them, David's is up there. I mean, he blew it, like, really bad. I mean, you read the story, and you're just like, dude, what were you thinking? David's up on his roof. You guys know the story. David's up on his roof, not at battle with his men like he should have been. He's looking over his roof. He sees a woman bathing named Bathsheba. I don't know how that worked out. She has the word bath in her name. Like, was that like, God thought that was funny. Um, but anyways, her name's Bathsheba. He sees her. He's, his heart is filled with lust. And because he's the king, he can do whatever he wants. So he, he says, hey, bring her to me. And he sleeps with her, okay? Um, 
terrible moment for David. But then it gets worse. Then he impregnates her. Okay? He impregnates her, and, and he, he doesn't want to get caught in his sin, so he, he does whatever he can to get away with it. So plan A is, okay, bring her husband home, who is Uriah, and Uriah was a good man. He was an honorable man. He was a soldier, and he loved David, and he fought for David, and he respected David. And so Uriah comes home, and, and David says, Uriah, I want you to come. I want you to go and just enjoy your wife for the night. Well, Uriah's like, no, there's no way I can do that. Not while, the, not while my, my, my bros and arms are out living in the trenches and the mud, sleeping in ditches, fighting the, the Philistines or Canaanites, whoever they were fighting. I can't do that, so I'm sorry, David, but I'm just going to camp out here. And David's like, okay, plan B. <laughs> Come in and have some drinks. So he gets Uriah drunk, thinking if he gets him drunk, maybe then he'll go and sleep with his wife so that he can just say, oh, it's his kid. Well, once again, Uriah doesn't do it. He falls short, right? Or Uriah's a good man. He won't do it. So plan C. David says, okay, go back to the battlefield, Uriah. And then he sends a message to his general saying, I want you to send Uriah out at the front of the military attack, and then I want you to abandon him. So you know what David did? He murdered him. He murdered the man whose wife he slept with. He committed adultery and killed the, the, the husband of this woman so that he wouldn't have to deal with his own sin. Brutal. How in the world can something like that display God's nature? Okay, and, and in reality, we can all sit here and judge David, but in reality, we've all done some terrible things too. How can the terrible things in our life that often happen over and over again in any way possibly show people God's nature? What is defining about David's life, it's not his failures, but it's how he dealt with his failures. It's not, it's not like, like David failed, but, but the lesson here is not in, in, in his failing it's what he did in his, after his failing. So Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and uh, prophetically calls David out. He tells David this story about this rich guy who, um, who basically, uh, uh, a parable basically about a wealthy man who steals uh, a poor man's only prized sheep. So this rich guy who has everything, doesn't need anything, comes into a poor man, takes his sheep, steals it. And David is furious. He's like, what? Tell me who this person is. They're gone, man. Like, he, they're, they're out of here. And, and you gotta love this moment. I mean, this is like a drop the mic moment for, for Nathan. He's just like, it's you. And you think David didn't know what he was talking about? He knew instantly what he was talking about. Probably been haunting him this entire time. And now it's out. But what's interesting is in that moment, David has a decision. Either he can, I mean, he could have Nathan killed for all he wants. That's not what David wanted. He wanted restoration with God. He wanted repentance. He wanted God's forgiveness. He wanted it to be dealt with. And there's three really key things that David does specifically in, in the way that he repents. And I just note them really quick. Uh, the first thing, and you'll, you'll find them all in 2 Samuel. The first thing is that he doesn't blame shift. He doesn't go, yeah, but she was bathing on the, see, I mean, she was bathing on the roof, dude. Like, what, what was she thinking? And yeah, Uriah, I mean, he just wouldn't go, he wouldn't go meet his wife, and so I had to, I had to kill him. Like, he didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't blame shift, he owned it. He said, okay, I'm the issue. I'm the problem. The second thing was that he recognized that his sin was not against Uriah. His sin was not against Israel. His sin was against who? God. His sin was against God. He recognized that, and he displays that. In, in Psalm uh, 51, when we, we hear about, you know, David, just this gut-wrenching psalm after, after his sin, uh, and he's just pouring out in repentance to God, he says, God, against you have I sinned. Against you have I sinned. And then thirdly, he repented in order to restore his relationship with God. He didn't just repent so that Nathan wouldn't think ill of him. He didn't just repent so that Israel wouldn't think he was a bad person. He repented because he cared about his relationship with God. And that was the difference between Saul and David. Saul just wanted to be successful. Saul just wanted the comfort. Saul just wanted God to help him out, to be on his side. David wanted God. 
Saul wanted what God could give him. David wanted God himself. He treasured God. You see this in Psalm 51.9 when, again, David is just pouring out his heart. He says, hide not your face from my, or hide your, he's our, Sorry, he says, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me, within me. He says, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold, with me, or uphold me with a willing spirit. David's prayer was simply that God would not remove his presence from him. It's a big deal. God uses our failures. But it's up to you whether you're going to actually, those, your, those failures are actually going to be used by God or if they're just going to cause destruction. There's sort of this, this lie that, that Christians have swallowed that they're only useful when they're doing the right thing. They're, they're only useful when they're in a, a position where they have all their ducks in a row and, the, and everything's going good. But when they fail and when they screw up and when they mess up, that's not useful. So it goes under the rug. And then the best things in your life come out, and the best things are the things that you try to use to encourage people. Yeah, this is what I did. Here's how we did this. Here's how I got better. Here's how I grew past this. Rather than, here's how I failed. And here's how God redeemed me. The, the, probably the most important thing that you could give somebody who needs Jesus is your failures. Do you know that? Because your failures exemplify the grace of God. And that's what God is trying to teach people, is the grace that he has. And through our failures, people can see that. It's really interesting. I'm reading in my, in my personal time in the Word. I'm reading Romans chapter. I'm reading the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul is building this case for why we should not go back to Judaism. Okay, well, we should not go back to the law, and, and he's, he's building this case, and he's talking about Abraham, and he's doing all this crazy Pauline, you know, mind ninja stuff, and then he, he gets into this one point where he quotes David, and I found it really interesting, because here I am studying David's life, and here's Paul quoting David, and what I found interesting was what he chose to quote David saying. It's almost as though, and this may be a stretch for you, but I, I think it's true. Um, it's almost as though Paul is saying, here's what I think made David great. Here's what, Paul, here's what about David's life that we can take and say, this is what we can learn from this man. And here's what he quotes David saying. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin." So Paul records David saying, blessed is the man that is what? Forgiven. It's interesting because not so much what he says, but what he didn't say. Like David could have said a million other things in place of that. Blessed is the man who carries the favor of the Lord. Blessed is the man who is the king. Uh, blessed is the man who is born of Abraham. Blessed is the man who rules righteously. Or blessed is the man who unites the kingdom of Israel. All these things that David did. But the one thing that he chooses to say that makes him blessed is not that he's good or that he's strong or that he's powerful, that he's anything, but that he's forgiven. Like David says, you want the most valuable thing that I own? It's forgiveness. It's the fact that God has forgiven my iniquities. That is the most valuable thing that we have. It's the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of God. And not only is it the most valuable thing that we have, it's the most valuable thing that we can give. It's the most valuable thing that we can give. But listen, your effectiveness for God is only as good as your willingness to embrace God's grace. Your effectiveness for God is only as, willing, as good as your willingness to embrace God's grace. If you're not willing to embrace his grace, you will not be effective. If you're not willing to say the best thing I have to offer is what he's given me and that's forgiveness, you're not gonna do anything. God's intention for David was not that he would be Jesus. God knew David was not gonna be Jesus. God's intention for David was to be a picture of Jesus through his fallenness and through his successes. And look at me, guys. God's intention for you is not for you to be Jesus. I think somehow we put this expectation on ourselves. 
can't believe I failed again. I can't believe I failed again. You are not Jesus. God's intention for you was that you would display Jesus through your strengths and through your failures. That through your failures, God, people would see God's grace and God's ability to forgive and to restore. But often the hardest part of life is not just the failing, it's the fallout, right? It's not, it's not just the failure, it's what happens after the failure. And probably the most depressing and brutal part of David's story is not just when he failed, not when he was running from Saul, but it was when he had the fallout of his sin. Because yes, God forgave him, but God said inevitably there's going to be fallout. There's going to be things that are going to happen because of this sin that you've lived in. In chapters 13 through 24, we see a really tragic ending to David's life. Five things in specific that happened in his life that, that, that really, um, just a series of tragedies. Number one, David's child that he had with Bathsheba in sin. The child dies. The child dies. And then David's son Amnon this is terrible. David's son Amnon ends up raping his half-sister. He's attracted to her, Tamar. So he, he, he rapes her. Um, and then because of that, Absalom, David's oldest son, revenges his sister by murdering Amnon. So David is now watching his household fall apart. His son is raping his half-sister, and then his other son is murdering his son and revenging her sister because David didn't do anything about it. He sat complacently watching. And then Absalom, David's oldest son, conspires against him and takes the throne from David and literally starts a civil war between father and son. <laughs> this is brutal. Can you imagine having to fight your own son for the throne? A civil war breaks out. David is exiled again, forced to leave Jerusalem, his home, his city, and run from his own son. And then, militarily, David overpowers Absalom and his servant Joab, which he could never seem to control, ends up killing his son. It's kind of a weird story, actually. Absalom gets his hair stuck in a tree, and then Joab comes up and takes him out. The heartbreak of David having to see his kids killed by each other and his kids killed by his own servant and his own man. It's terrible, heartbreaking. The end of David's life was surrounded by pain and turmoil. But here's the thing. Okay, here's the thing. Again, how does that, how does that reflect God? How does that part of David's life reflect God? Two things specifically, and this is important. You might write these down, and I think they're even in the questions. How does fallout illustrate God's Heart. Well, fallout, first of all, postures you to illustrate God's redemptive heart. Okay, it postures you, it puts you in a position to where you can illustrate, you can explain and show through your life God's redemptive heart. Now, God's desire for people is not just that they would see his grace, okay? God's, God's heart is not that, that people would just understand that God forgives sin, but that God is a redeemer, you know what that means is that God's not just there to pay for your sin. He's there to put the pieces back together when you break everything. And he wants you to see that about him in David's life. He didn't just forgive David. He restored David through all of the fallout that came with David's sin. Now, did God, say, did God make all of these things happen? These things were a result of David's sin. But God was there to restore. So first of all, Fallout postures you to illustrate God's redemptive heart. God wants to use your broken life. He wants to use the season that you're in where you're experiencing brokenness and fallout and tragedy and turmoil. He wants to use that so that you can illustrate how he puts the pieces back together, how he fixes everything. The beautiful thing about David is that 2 Samuel is not the only illustration of David's life. You know what else there is? The book of Psalms. Most of the Psalms were written by David. And you know what the Psalms serve as? They serve as a window into the heart of this man during all of this stuff. So when you read the Psalms, and not every Psalm was written by David, but many of them were. He was a musician, he was a songwriter. 
Many of these songs, you read them and you go and you figure out where David was at in his life when he wrote that psalm and you go, wow. And God was doing heart work. See, Samuel is just sort of the, it's just sort of the nuts and bolts history of his life. There's no mention of what he's thinking or what he's feeling or what he's doing. The Psalms are the window into his soul. And through Samuel's, through David's broken life, through the fallout of his broken life and through the Psalms, we get to read about how God was restoring him in his heart the whole way along. And I want to tell you guys that your brokenness and your fallout from your mistakes or from just life in general is never wasted. God is using that to illustrate and to show others how he redeems, how he fixes things, that he is the great redeemer. Some would probably say that the end of David's life was a waste. I completely disagree. Completely disagree. Nothing is wasted with God. Nothing. He uses every failure and every pain that you experience to illustrate his redemptive hand. And the second thing that fallout does is it postures you to embody God's redemptive heart. So first to illustrate it, and secondly, to embody it. And what I mean by that is not only can people see God's redemption through your life, but you actually get to redeem. You actually get to join God in the redemption because he's redeemed you. Um, we have time, so I want to go there. Luke chapter 7, flip there really quick, would you? I was just reading this right before I came down to teach, and I just thought it would be worth looking at. So Luke chapter 7, um, I'll give you the backstory story here. Uh, basically, um, a Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house, and um, it was customary that when you came over to someone's house, if, if they were a friend, that they would greet you at the door, they would wash your feet, um, or something like that, or at least have their servant wash your feet, um, because in that day your feet were dirty, and they would invite you in, and you would show hospitality to that person. So Jesus gets invited to this Pharisee's house, who's supposed to be, you know, like the, the top, top dog, religious, generous person. He gets invited to his house, and Jesus is not greeted in that way. Um, he sits and has a discourse with them, and then pretty soon, this, this woman who was known, okay, known for being a sinful woman, promiscuous, thought of as the lowest in society, and of course, with Judaism, you don't get touched by a woman like that, because if you do, you're unclean, okay? That woman should not be touching you in Judaism. Dirty, filthy, scum, that's how everyone thought of her. So here comes Jesus into this Pharisee's house, and now this woman comes up and begins to clean and wash his feet, the thing that the Pharisees, or at least servants, should have done for him. She begins to do it with her hair and with her tears and breaks an alabaster bottle of, of ointment, expensive ointment, over his feet, and she basically pours it out and gives it all to him. And then he has this discourse, this conversation with the Pharisee, because in verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman it is who is touching him. In other words, if he's really a prophet, he would know that this woman should not be touching his feet because she's defiling him with her filthy hands, right? For she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered and said, say it, teacher. And Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Jesus just pierces right to the heart and he says, I want you to think about this. If, 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 one, if two men owed one, one, one debtor, uh, one owed him $50 and one owed him $500,000 and both debts were forgiven, who is going to be more thankful? The one who's been forgiven $500,000, obviously. Simon answered, well, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt, obviously, he said to him. Jesus said, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, her brokenness. Her brokenness is what she washed his feet with. Those tears weren't made up. Those tears weren't fake. 
Those tears came from the fact that she was shamed in her culture, that she was thought of as nothing, as scum, that her life was nothing but fallout from her sinful activity. Those tears, that's where they came from. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, and you gave me no kiss, but from the time I gave, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, Jesus doesn't have any qualms about that. She's a sinner. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. What a beautiful story, right? What's happening here? This woman can now embody God's redemptive heart because she, the most valuable thing in the world to her was forgiveness. She gave up an alabaster jar that would have been the most valuable thing she probably owned. She didn't give it up, she traded it in for a greater joy, a greater treasure. And just like David, she saw there's nothing that makes a man or a woman more blessed than to be forgiven. And out of her brokenness, she now could do much. The point of this is he who loves, he who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. The more that you have been forgiven and the more that you are aware of your forgiveness, the more that you are able to give out that same grace, that same love, and to steward that grace, to give out that grace in return. David's hard life only proved to solidify his understanding of God's heart. What I love is, I just want to say this really quickly, when you get to the end of David's life and you hear his words, you don't find a man who's been beaten by life. You don't. You don't find a man who's, who's done, who's throwing in the towel, saying, okay, I, I lost. I'm a failure. It's not what you find. I want to read you some of David's last words. 2 Samuel 23, 51. Just listen to it. So, so David says this, right? Just, just shortly before he's going to pass away, an old man, a broken man, a man who's seen a lot of things, he says, great salvation he brings to his king. Who's he talking about? Himself, David. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. And listen to this, to David and his offspring forever. Here's what made David great. Not the things that he did, not the failures, not the, none of that. What made David great was that he knew God loved him because he knew God's heart. And he says even at the end of his life, that God has loved him and will love his offspring forever. Forever, no matter what. And I wanna leave you guys with that tonight. I wanna leave you guys with the fact that nothing in your life is wasted, that everything in your life God can and will use to bring glory to himself, and that you need to know that like David, you are loved. You are loved. Oh, God can't love me, that's not true. Did you know God loved you before you were even born? Did you know God loved you while you were doing the worst thing of your life? God loved David while he was sleeping with Bathsheba. God loved David while he sent Uriah to be killed. God loved David before the foundations of the earth. And God called David the man after his own heart before David was even born. It had nothing to do with whether he did right or wrong. It had everything to do with the fact that God loved him. Based off of his own love. His own faithfulness. And I want to tell you guys, before the foundations of the earth, God knew you. Knowing full well everything that you would do wrong, he died for you anyways. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you, for the ungodly, for you and I. That's really good news. How can we know God loves us? Because he knows everything about us. He knows everything about us, and he still loves us. And he proved it through the better David, the eternal David, the forever king, Christ. Isn't that good? And I just want to ask you guys this. Are you ready for God to use all of your life? Not just the good parts. Are you ready for God to use all of it? The sadness, the sorrow, the brokenness, all of it. Because he wants to. He wants to use you as his redemptive story. Amen? Let's all stand, guys.
can I encourage you guys? I know it's easy to, to take in a teaching and then just to go home and forget about it. But tonight, would you guys pray through this stuff? Would you say, Lord, how can you use all of my life? Not just the good parts, not, not just the bad parts, but the fallout, the brokenness, all of it. How can you use all of that? And ask yourself that question. If someone was to look at my life from beginning to end, would they see me or would they see God's reflection? Pray about that. Wrestle with that. Meditate on that tonight and, 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 and respond to that in the way that's necessary, okay? Lord, we pray that David's life would be a great, great testimony, not of David's life, but of your interaction in David's life of your mighty, eternal, sovereign, loving, gracious, and strong hand in David's life. And God, we want to reach the end of our life, like David, with nothing else on our lips other than blessed is the man who is forgiven. There's nothing more valuable than the forgiveness that is in you. God, help us to live like that. Not just to know that, not just to agree with that at church, but to live like that that our most valuable possession is you and your forgiveness. So God, we love you so much and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us and leads us, God. We just pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you guys. We'll see you Sunday. Oh, I gotta announce one thing really quick. Pastor Brent really needs help next week with Teardown for Awanas. Um, he has to leave like right after Awanas. So if any of you guys would be willing, would you... Um, Come next week and then just head right over next week afterwards and help him tear down. He's like here till 10 p.m. usually tearing down for Awana. So he needs help. Just wanted to announce that to you guys really quick. Lord bless you.